0: Hey everyone, I'm Michelle Spillane, one of the worship leaders here at Sanctus Church, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by enabling people of all ages to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's prepare our hearts for the message today. Hey, St. Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us, whether you're at a physical location today, you're watching on our online site, maybe you're at our cottage, maybe you're in another country, wherever you are, no matter who you are, welcome I was uh, reflecting on this as I was driving in uh, today. I was hanging out with a friend of mine in Southern California. It was the first time I'd ever been to Southern California. He is in the movie and TV industry. He actually was on a show uh, on CBS. And so I was hanging out and visiting with him. And between me doing tourist stuff and between takes, he took me to this place I had never seen before called Chipotle. Now, when I had it, I was like actually quite struck how good it was, how fast it was. And I was like, why is this not in Canada? Like, why in the world do we not have this amazing restaurant up where I live? This would, this would kill in Toronto. Well, after that, I was then introduced to Chick-fil-A in that same trip and was also totally blown away why this also was not in Canada. Well, of course, I ate there once or twice. I was like, this is actually pretty good. Yes, fast food, but it was good, and it was actually really good. And so when I came back to Canada, I, of course, told my family about it. And the, the experience of cross-border travel got more interesting. You know how this is. If you're an American listening to this, you won't understand this. If you're a Brit listening to this, it's a different experience. But as Canadians, sometimes one of the reasons why we want to go to the States, are they have things we just don't have access to. So for a very long time, going to the States, so many people wanted to go to Target. You remember that? You used to call it Target, some of you. You're like, oh, my goodness, or Trader Joe's. But I wanted to go to Chipotle and I wanted to go to Chick-fil-A because it was really good and it was special we didn't have it here. Well, like good strategy, they decided to place their stores up here. And so now when I go to Chick-fil-A or I go to to Chipotle, it's fine. It's good. I really enjoy it. Sometimes I hardly have it, but when I have access to it in the city, it's really good, but it's now not special. I don't think about that as part of my trip when I go to the States to do something. You're like, okay, John, why are you talking about fast food? Here's why. For me, and for lots of us, there are things that are rare and sort of exciting or really tasty or something to look forward to, and they're special because we don't have access to them very much. And then when we get them all the time, they just become okay. Uh, There's an old phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, and I would add boring also. And so why am I bringing this up? Here's why. This sermon series, The Names of God, for some of you, you who are seekers, skeptics, you who come from another faith, no faith at all, what this is doing is this is sort of introducing you to how unbelievably good and amazing God is. And the more you listen and the more you hear and the more you encounter Him, the more you're going to go, oh, wow, why have you not been in my life before? For tons of us who already are followers of Jesus, and we've encountered the God of the Old Testament through Jesus by the Spirit, this series is actually to sort of shake us out of our complacency a little bit, out of our, yeah, yeah, I know that, this maybe boring and or sort of just like, yeah, yeah, God's just fine, and to recover some awe, to recover actually some wow, to recover some worship and reverence, Because actually the God we know is incredible, is amazing. As I said, I think two weeks ago, is the most significant, most beautiful, most truthful being in the universe. It's to recover something that we used to feel really amazed by, which we might not any longer. Now today we're week three, and we're going to talk about one of the most controversial names of God in the whole Bible, but also one of the most comforting names of God in the whole Bible. The name we're going to talk about today is the Lord of Hosts. That's how it was in the King James, or the God of Angel Armies. It can also be translated, I think, in the NIV, God Almighty. It's Yahweh Tesbaoth. Now, it's used about 240 times in the Bible. God is a warrior. He really does fight. And when you hear the phrase God Almighty or God of Hosts, much of the time he's pictured surrounded by the hosts of heaven the angelic armies coming to do his bidding and fight on his behalf or to fight for his people other times creation itself is invoked the sun the moon the stars rivers mountains hail snow people animals they don't just worship god they actually fight on his behalf also now this time this name is used time and time again to remind the people of god that the covenant relationship they have with him and the promises of God are so real that he will actually protect his bride with force. Here's an example in Psalm 46, six. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall, he lifts his voice, the earth melts, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. This name was given to remind his people in every generation It actually doesn't matter the number of troops you have or the weapon technology you have. Actually, it would seem, if you read the Bible carefully, it was better to have a poorly equipped army and not great weaponry because actually at the end of the day, God does the fighting. God shows off. It's God's hand that does this. And we learn to trust in Him and not in ourselves. Now, God in this name is used in all sorts of cases. The time of Joshua, Gideon, Elisha, but there are two historical accounts that if you have any church memory at all, some of you don't, many of you do, they're the most well-known. Moses versus Pharaoh and David versus Goliath. So let's just start with Moses. We enter the story when Moses and Aaron are standing in the very actual seat of power and speaking to the most powerful human being on earth in that moment. Exodus 5 verse 1. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. Pharaoh responds by saying this, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Okay, so 11 times this question, who is the Lord, is answered by God in word and deed. And God's goal is to set his people free, But his goal also is to show Pharaoh and the Egyptians who he actually is. Now, this sets the stage for a real conflict. This is a historical moment. And the battle, don't get confused, is not between Moses and Pharaoh. It's actually between the gods that own each of them. We catch the real perspective, heaven's perspective, of what's truly happening in the Exodus account, this part of it, in Exodus 12.12, when God says, I, God will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. So, if you know part of the story or some of it or all of it, there are 10 plagues. There are 11 miraculous activities that take place, but 10 plagues, and each one of these things point to God being sovereign. God is king over all things including the greatest leader in that time and the grandest superpower of that time that's Egypt. And as we're going to discover, each plague is not just against Pharaoh or his people. Each plague is connected to a specific God that the Egyptians trusted in. This is, whether you're uncomfortable with it or not as a Canadian, this is holy war. Exodus 7 reads like this, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it becomes a snake. Pharaoh then summons his wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. So this, again, is not allegory. This historically actually happened. And when Moses and Aaron throw down their staff, it turns into a snake. He's not phased. He's not freaked out. We would freak out. He's like, yeah, yeah, I've seen this so many times before. This is everyday supernatural let's-go power. So it's like he basically says, boys, come over here. These guys think they're all that. Listen, you do the same thing. So he motions his sorcerers to come over, and they do the same activity. So here's what we begin to understand. Behind the gods of the nations, there is real demonic power. The gods of Egypt might be fake idols, but behind the thing is real power. So yes, there's real power, but here's the difference. It's not eternal power. It's not from the hand of the king of kings and lord of lords. That is the Lord almighty. Okay, but the next thing begins to give us a window into God being warrior. It says in verse 12, But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And then it says Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. So it appears for one moment, just watch this, that Moses and Aaron's sign has been outdone by the demonic powers inspired by Pharaoh's magicians. But then suddenly, Moses and Aaron's snake kills their snakes and swallows them whole. Well, Pharaoh, he will not obey, he will not give in or relent. So now at this moment, God acts with the famous 10 plagues. And like again, I, uh, but, but again, like I share, like as I share this, All of this is to reflect who is the true living God. Who is not just a God or a power. The question is, who is the ultimate God, the Lord Almighty? And all of this is about God's judgment. This is God's humiliation of the Egyptians and their gods. So the first plague begins like this in Exodus 7.17. This is what God says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die. The river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. So they move from the courtroom, that is the place of power, and now all the people of Egypt will be affected. Now, one of the most basic needs of every human being is water, and their water is about to be contaminated. Now, why does God start with the Nile? Because the Egyptians actually thought the Nile was a God itself, the source of life, and the source of life is now about to become the source of death. So the first plague was directed at Apis, the god of the Nile, Isis, the goddess of the Nile, and Hanun, the guardian of the Nile. See, the Egyptians actually believed the Nile was the bloodstream of Osiris, who was reborn each year when the river flooded. So here's what God is saying. All these gods are about to be judged. And all of Egypt, of course, is fully dependent on the Nile for economics, civilization, religion, prosperity. God strikes the heart of security. God strikes the heart of prosperity. And then God also is saying, if you know the story, I want to remind you that you, Pharaoh, commanded that all the little baby boys born to Jewish families were drowned in this river. So now you will see my dangerous remembrance I am the Lord Almighty. I am the God of angel armies. I will fight for my children. But the fight, like I've shared, is between supernatural powers. Because then you see in verse 22, well, the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. And he would not listen to Moses or Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went back into his palace. He didn't even take this to heart. I don't give a rip. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water. So what happens is there's an ongoing supernatural power struggle between the God of the Israelites and the gods of Egypt and the battle between Pharaoh and Aaron and Moses. And it seems like an equal match. But remember this. There's always a wrestle in a real fight before there's a victory. Well, One week later, God sends sends Moses into the court of Pharaoh, the place of power again. The first major plague, of course, caused infrastructure chaos, but water is still accessible. So the next plague comes, and it's actually from the same place. We're now in Exodus 8.6. Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up, and they covered the land. Now, I just want you to sit with this. I want you to imagine millions upon millions upon millions of frogs everywhere croaking, the slimy things are in your bed, in your bread, in your socks, in your underwear, all the time, everywhere you go, you're stepping on them, they're in your baby's crib. No person, no place, no home, no palace was not touched by this plague. And this is not just gross or just a major inconvenience. This plague of frogs, which by the way, come from the Nile, is a judgment against the, the Egyptian god Heket, which was a, a frog-headed goddess representing birth, Frogs in Egyptian culture were thought to be sacred, but now this sacred moment has become a public health crisis. No one's even able probably to prepare food well. Verse 7, though. Oh, but the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and they made frogs come up from the land. So they repeat the same thing. But here's the difference. Now there's hundreds of millions of frogs everywhere, and... They're just there, and suddenly Pharaoh cries out, and Moses prays, and all the frogs die, and it just stinks across the land. But they're still able to keep up with God, it would seem, demonically. Third plague, Exodus eight seventeen, Aaron stretched out his hand with a staff and struck the dust of the ground, and gnats came on people and animals, and all the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. Ah, but when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, They could not since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere. Now, gnats in English basically is a two-winged, biting creature, like a mosquito. Now, notice, where does Aaron strike? The land. What is this declaring? God has authority over water. God has authority over land. God has authority over seen things. God has authority over unseen things. And notice now, the magicians, their power can't keep up. Yes, they were real. Yes, they had real demonic power. Yes, the gods of the nations are demonic powers, but God is all-powerful. Satan is just powerful. Uh, Satan has a beginning and end. God has no beginning and end. And of course, if you do your history, this is a judgment on Set, the god of the desert. The Magicians say in verse 19 to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh would not listen. So you got blood and you got frogs and you got biting insects. And for a brief time, uh, they cause chaos, but not death. But now the next three plagues get way more serious. The fourth plague comes and it's flies. Exodus 8.21, if you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you, your officials, your people, into your homes. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Listen to this. Even on the ground... Will, cover, will be covered by them. And then he says, but I will make a distinction between my people and your people, and this will happen tomorrow. Uh, you probably have not thought about this historically, but no screen doors, no fully fixed doors, no windows, in a very hot climate, they had sort of fabric on their windows and they need breeze and airflow. And if they close those fabric sort of windows up, then you're dealing with dangerous, unbearable heat. But if you open it up, suddenly you're gonna be covered and choking with swarms of flies. You eat, they're in your mouth. You open your mouth, they're in your mouth. You sleep, you're covered in them. You work, you're covered like everywhere. Can you imagine being covered by flies? And we all know that flies carry disease. This is almost like a biological weapon. Pharaoh will not say yes. So Moses says next in Exodus 9, the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, His personal hand, will bring a terrible plague on the livestock in the field. Horse, donkey, camel, cattle, sheep, goats. The Lord, though, will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and Egypt. I mean, this would decimate the economy of Egypt. But more, I want you to catch this. This is the first time where God's hand is mentioned, which is a, is a way of talking about God's power. And he's personally doing this. Again, this is another attack on the gods of Egypt. This was judgment on the goddess Hathor and the god Apis, who are depicted as cattle. They would be humiliated. The nation would be humiliated. Now, maybe you're really uncomfortable with this whole conversation. Judgment, plagues, But don't miss this, because it really matters. God keeps giving even his enemies grace. He gives so many outs to Pharaoh, who, by the way, are enslaving a million plus people. He brings judgment, notice, in increments. Even in needed judgment, God gives mercy. There's outs, but Pharaoh will not take the out. God will give him an out. He will not humble himself under his word. Pharaoh will not listen, no matter what it costs him or his people. Well, God then sends the sixth plague, festering boils, which is a judgment against the god, the god Sekhmet and Isis because they were, in Egyptian culture, believed to have the ability to prevent disease. Exodus nine eight. take a handful of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it in the air in the presence of Pharaoh it will become, become a fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. Now, I've heard this story my whole life, but only a few years ago did I actually catch the real power of this moment. What this reads like in Hebrew is, go to a kiln and take soot from it. Why does this matter? Because the whole Jewish nation was enslaved, and their main job in slavery was to bake bricks to build the great palaces and memorials to the Egyptians. So this is what God says. Go to the place of injustice. Go to the heart and the symbol of slavery. Take the soot of an injustice, and out of the injustice, I will do the greatest of things. Wow. And then it says this. The magicians could not stand, verse 11, before Moses because of the boils that were on them and all the Egyptians. Pharaoh still will not repent. God says in Exodus 9, 15, For by now I could have stretched out my hand, Pharaoh, and struck you and your people off the face of this earth with a plague. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You think you're in charge, Pharaoh? No, no, I'm in charge. I've literally raised you up to demonstrate my power. And there are global implications. Generations from now, they're still going to talk about this because I am God, I am sovereign, I'm uncreated, you're created. I'm all-powerful, you're sort of only powerful. I have no beginning and end. You have a beginning and end. I'm the potter, you are the clay. And let me just pause and remind everyone in 2023... Pharaoh was the most powerful, most wealthy, most armed man in this time on earth, and God says to him, "You got nothing on me." That's still true today. Well, next came hail, no change. So we come to the second last plague, darkness. Exodus ten twenty-two. Total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Now, three days of darkness was aimed at the great deity of Egypt, Ra, one of the chief deities of all of Egypt. And by the way, Ra was symbolized by Pharaoh himself, the the sun god. Now, we take this for granted living in 2023, but we should just stop. Most of us don't actually know what darkness is anymore. We work at night. We have lights on our phones, we have lights in our homes, we have lights in our cars, we have lights on our devices. Very few of us have ever been in an environment for three days where it is dark at night, let alone dark 24 hours a day. Three days, life is shut down, no light. And by the way, darkness in the ancient mind was related to death, which of course is a precursor of what's coming next. Well, we come to the end of this story, and death is coming, and this will be judgment again on Isis, the protector of children. Basically, God says to Pharaoh, so you've enslaved my firstborn and my bride. So I will take the life of your firstborn. Exodus 11. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl, who is at her handmill, And all the firstborn cattle as well. There will be a loud wailing in Egypt worse than there has ever been or will ever be. Um, This is terrible and, and devastating and chilling. But a lot of times we actually miss the full implication. A lot of times, even if you look at like comic book Bibles, it's all babies who die. No, no, this says any firstborn son. So anyone who's alive at this moment, who was a firstborn son? You could be a child, a brand new baby. You could be an adult, a grandpa. Anyone who's a firstborn son dies in this moment. Every generation is affected like that. But God will guard his people. This is where this amazing Jewish tradition, which of course is fulfilled fully in Christ, the Passover shows up. Because then he says, God says to his people in Exodus 12, each Jewish man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. It's got to be pure, unblemished. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the top of the door frames of the home where you eat the lambs. So he says, look, death is about to literally pass over. I, God, the warrior God, I'm going to bring death. But... I'm going to pass over your homes. But to pass over your home, you need an unblemished animal, a perfect animal given to a holy God, a life laid down, Uh, something that actually, though you deserve it, I will pass over. The blood covers the doors. God passes over the people. The Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, decides in mercy when he sees the blood to walk or pass over. It's quite a story. The pattern happens again and again in the Old Testament. During the time of the judges, which happens later, we see again a battle between the powers of the nations and, and the power between, behind God's people. It reads like this in 1 Samuel 5. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashad, and they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face before the Lord, the ark of the Lord, and his head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold, only his body remained. That, that's Dagon, by the way, is this fish god of the Philistines, and it had, the idol had fallen over. Now, to understand the power of that moment, you have to go to this other really, really, really famous story, David and Goliath. The worshippers of Dagon are the Philistines. They actually invade God's people generations later, right, from the Exodus account. Goliath is at the front of the Philistine army. He mocks them. He mocks the God of Israel. Everyone's afraid. Then this young teenage boy shows up who's a shepherd. He's there to help his older brother, give them food these in the army. And when he hears Goliath taunting, this is what he says in 1 Samuel 17, verse 26. David said to the men standing around him, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Fast forward, if you know the story, David goes and attacks this giant. No one else will do it. He just takes a sling and a stone. And this is what Goliath says to David. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. He said, what am I, a dog? Now, we might love dogs in our culture, but in Philistine culture, actually the dog was the lowest viewed animal. Actually, it was a slang for being a male prostitute. It's just like really, really, ugh. He says, you think I'm this? And he's not done. Then he curses David by his gods. He invokes supernatural power to destroy David. How does David respond? He responds like this in verse 45. David said to Goliath, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, oh, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, in the name of God of angel armies, in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and I'll cut off your head. And all those gathered here will know it's not by sword and it's not by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you, all of you, into our hands. And and then if you keep reading, David triumphed over the Philistine with sling and stone, and after he killed him, he cut off his head with a sword. Okay, did you make the connection? What happens in the physical happens in the spiritual. What happens in the spiritual happens in the physical. As Goliath was killed and had his head cut off by God's representative, it was only replaying holy history where God had defeated the god of Goliath, Dagon, a few months or years earlier, and how his head was broken off. God defeats his enemies, demonic and human, all that oppose him, every single time. Okay. The fulfillment of all of this is actually Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God, the Lord of hosts. I mean, Jesus has overcome all the demonic forces. Jesus has overcome death. Jesus has overcome sin by his resurrection. If you want to catch it, it's in Colossians 2.15. Jesus, this is heaven's view. Having disarmed the powers and authorities... Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Disarm means to strip off or put off or take off. Jesus stripped the power and authority of Satan and the demonic and death and sin. He removed all of what they had. And that phrase, right, made a public spectacle of them. I've talked about this before. Let me do it again. It's so incredible. In Roman times, this is what Paul is thinking about. When a general, a Roman general, conquered another community, And he won. He would come into Rome and he would walk in triumphal procession. The general would come in first, then his army, and all of Rome would show up. They'd all pack the streets, right? And they'd celebrate, and they'd throw flowers, and they'd sing. But then behind the Roman army, the defeated king and their army would be in chains, and they would be mocked, and they would be spit at, and they would be, you're defeated, you're defeated. And this is what's happening. When Jesus rose physically from the dead, he actually, on a global, universal, like, creation scale, actually made Satan and the demonic walked behind him and all the heavens declared, you are done and defeated. Anyone want to say amen? Okay, so what does this mean? Well, to understand Moses and Pharaoh and to understand, right, Dagon and Goliath and David and the incredible work of Jesus, you have to go to the end of the book. You need to go actually to the end of time. Because then this becomes all clear, and if you've been a Christian for a while, this is when you should really lean in. At the end of time, this is going to happen. All of God's enemies will be destroyed. See, here's some of the weird thing in church. People are like, "Well, God is is like really mean in the Old Testament, and He's really really nice in the New." No, Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are one God. He never changes. God today is the Lord Almighty. The scriptures are clear. At the end of time, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, whether they want to or not, that Jesus is Lord. Every leader from Buddhism, every leader from Hinduism, every leader from Judaism, every leader from Christianity, every leader from Islam, every leader from Sikhism or Baha'ism, every secular humanist, every great politician and poet and military general, every human being will suddenly know Jesus is Lord. They will kneel. And at that moment of kneeling, Jesus will bring judgment. He is the Lord Almighty. Matthew twenty five, thirty-one. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all his angels with him. Oh, there it is. God of angel armies. He will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and then the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Then he'll say to those on the left, depart from me, depart depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels." Then they will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous will go to eternal life. You're like, well, John, what's the point? Well, let me do it like this. Number one, if you are a seeker here today or you're skeptical or you have Christian memory, like grandma's a Christian, so you think you're a Christian or maybe you're from another formal faith or you're spiritual, however you classify yourself, this is what the living God is saying to you today. Find mercy while you can at the end of time, when you face the living God of heaven and earth and all of His beauty and magnificence and His humility and His love and His appropriate judgment, will you face Him with relationship or without it? Will you face Him as Father and friend and Savior, or will you meet Him as warrior? See, this is what's so offensive to Canadian culture, but is so true. The Bible says every single human being is an enemy of God because of our sin. Colossians 1.21, Once pre-Jesus... You are alienated from God, every human being. You are enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. See, every human being, because of our sin, our walking away from God in Eden, we all are enemies of God, whether we know it or not, because of our behavior. In other words, we're enemies of the Lord Almighty. And yet God, because he is holy and love, in this middle period, keeps giving the out, keeps giving incredible mercy, yeah, I've quoted this before. There was a great debate years ago in England about what makes Christianity different than all the other religions. And this was being discussed at some conference. And some people said, well, Christianity is unique because God took on human flesh. Other people said, no, I can see that maybe in other faiths. Other people said, what about the resurrection? No, lots of people believe in the end the dead will rise. And the discussion grew heated. And then this very famous person, C.S. Lewis, walks in, who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, who used to be a hardcore atheist, who suddenly became a great defender of Christianity. And he said, classic English old school. He said, what's all the rumpus about? And, And he heard, oh, it's about what it makes... Christianity unique, and he laughed and said, it's easy, it's grace. And the room went, what? He said, it's grace. In other words, everyone ready? You move from being under God's just deserved wrath and being an enemy of God to a friend of God when Jesus, the Lamb of God, puts his blood over the doorpost of your life. You stop being with Pharaoh and the gods of this world and you end up being with the God of Moses through his son, Jesus. That's God's son, Jesus, when you embrace his work. See, there's this incredible moment of mercy. And the mercy is now. And the mercy has not yet run out. But you have to acknowledge, whether you want to or not, that actually by your behavior and my behavior, we're actually enemies of our creator. This is why Paul's words are so unbelievably profound. Again, if you're a seeker, skeptic, or religious, keep listening. Don't turn me off yet. Romans 5.9. Since, this is speaking to Christians, since now we have been justified, speaking to Christians, justified means in right relationship with God by Jesus' blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Jesus? For if we, listen to the language, while we were God's enemies, were reconciled, made friends to Him, God, through the death of Jesus' his son, how much more having been reconciled will we be saved through his life? The invitation for many of you is to humble yourself, acknowledge, I am a sinner, I am an enemy of God, I do need mercy, and I've been living my life like Pharaoh or trusting in all these other things, and actually I need his covering. What will you do with God's mercy today? What will you, go, what will you do with Jesus' incredible gift to you today? Will you resist like Pharaoh and be stubborn? Or will you actually say, oh my goodness, there's so much love and beauty here. Call out to Jesus if you've never done it and literally say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And see him transform your life. Lots of us here, of course, are followers of Jesus. So the question is, what what does this mean for us? Well, let me ask you this question. What battles are you facing? What giants are you facing? Demonic power, what fears, what setbacks in your life? I just want to remind you today, who do you actually know? Have you become way too familiar? (laughs) Is the Chipotle not as cool? Like, who do you actually know? Remember who God is. He is the Lord Almighty. No one can ultimately thwart the plans of God. God chose you. God fights for you. You need to call upon the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, to show up and fight fights we cannot win. And you're not alone. By the way, you're not alone. So many people in church think, what am I doing wrong because I'm facing? No, no. This is part of living in a fallen world. Remember Paul, like uber amazing Christian? He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, I wanted to come visit you. This is a local church. I did again and again. And Satan stopped us. What? Yeah. Satan stopped Paul from doing what God wanted to do for a period of time. So what does Paul do? 1 Thessalonians 3.11, he prays this prayer. Now may God our Father himself and the Lord Jesus Christ clear a way for us to come to you. Paul could not, was not able to see this church because Satan shut every door. Satan stopped and blocked and closed and clogged the way. The war was real. The battle was real. Satan can stop a church. Satan can stop a Christian. Satan can even stop a move of God. Baal, so aware of this, so above his pay grade, actually said, you know what? God, my Father, and Lord Jesus Christ, you need to show up, and you need to be God Almighty, and you need to clear a path. My invitation to you as a Christian is bring to the Lord of hosts this week what you're really facing, and ask Him to directly get involved. I end with this. Martin Luther wrote this incredible hymn called, The Mighty Fortress is Our God. Some of you grew up singing it. But I think it's the second verse, the second stanza, that ties all of this together. And this is what he well, wrote, which some of us grew up singing. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing? You may ask who that might be. Well, it's Jesus Christ. It's He. The Lord of hosts is His name. For age to age the same. And He must win the battle. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God, the Lord of hosts. And the power, of course, is through the Spirit. So let's just do this really quick as we end. One Lord... Thank you that you fight for us. Thank you that you overcame the demonic. Thank you that you've overcome physical death. You've overcome spiritual death. And through Christ, you've conquered everything that's against what we are and who we are. And you've given us freedom. I pray a few things. For those who have not yet actually embraced you, seen you, understood you. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit open their eyes to Christ, open their eyes to their stubbornness, open their uh, their eyes to what they're really trusting in and bring them to this incredible, help them to switch sides from Pharaoh actually to the God of Israel found in Christ. And for the rest of us, help us this week to actually bring the fights we're facing and we pray over them, God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, clear a path. Lord of hosts, win things we could never win. We ask this because you love You love us as your bride and you're for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. I hope this was encouraging for you and may God bless you. Have an amazing week.